Ephesians chapter verses 1 through 16. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, attain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one was over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, ascended on high, he led a host of cats. He gave gifts to men. In saying ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saint for the work of ministry, for the building up the body. Until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We may no longer be children taught by the waves and carried about by every wind of brim, by human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, whom the whole body joined and held together every joint with which it is equipped when each working properly makes the body grow so that it builds up in love. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, 1931, a building opened in New York. It was the first building that was over 100 stories. It took only one year for complete. At the time, and still is actually a, a model of engineering, known as the Empire State Building. And for, for 40 years, it was the highest, the tallest building in the world. Nothing matched it for... It, it was a marvel of engineering, not just of its height, and not just because it was built so but because of the great coordination it took, and it, and it typically takes in buildings uh, like the Empire State. Great takes among lots of different people working together to do the same thing. In uh, 1971, a far less famous building, only by its address, 2000 Commonwealth Avenue, 40 years later, so just as the Empire State Building was was being trumped by another building in the world, a 16-story residential uh, apartment collapsed died up until that point it had already taken six years to complete and if you read the uh, the story of why a 16-story building that took six, six years to complete it was great lack of planning and coordination among the people who were building it it's fascinating isn't it, isn't it? That, that one building built 40 years or another can stand the test of time and still be standing to take far less time to complete and be far larger. Well, we've been studying Ephesians, and here, like in a number of play scripture, Paul uses uh, the metaphor of a building to describe the church. 
that is all of God's people, together throughout time. And there are a few reasons that this metaphor is so often used in scripture. One of there were actual physical buildings that we read about in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, which is sort of a, a tent under Moses' guidance in Exodus, and also the temple built on Solomon. Uh, there's kings. These were, these were meant as a uh, of holy worship to God. They, they represented its presence among his people. They were meant to point at the Holy One of Israel, who created all things, dwelt in it. But these buildings only pointed forward to an even spiritual reality, that one day God would actually dwell among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And that his ultimate is not only that a small nation would follow him, centered at a graphic location, but that as a plan for the fullness of, Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, that all things in heaven and earth would be united under Christ. It's very people, he continues in chapter 2.21, which Luke preached on, are being joined together to become a holy temple for the Lord. Just like a physical building requires many different people working together, architects, engineers, suppliers, and of course, all construction workers, not to mention those who fund the projects, God has in his building a variety of different gifts in order that structure would be built up. But unlike a building, ultimately God's building, his church cannot fail. One miscommunication cannot result in such a as would disrupt the final structure. From an, an eternal perspective, God's plan to unite things in Christ cannot fail. Well, why is that? Because of this, in, in this metaphor of a building, those within his temple, we're not the enders, we're not the architects, we're not the conquerors. God is all of those things in his building. We're simply the building blocks that must be wrought and hammered and shaped and gathered into a structure. And God intends not just stone should be missing, but that every stone would be just in its place. Well, how many of us then are not in the right place? Like we don't know what we're doing here. Last week, Luke began a sermon by asking a diagnostic question. He, he said, do I really believe that more than anything else my identity and my life God's love for me. And this week I want to carry the same question a step further. Knowing that your identity are defined by God's love for you, you believe that you are a necessary part of God's plan. Now by necessary, I don't mean that God needs you for his own existence, but I mean he has a place for you. He has a purpose for you. He has a role for you I'm not, I'm not promoting here cool individualism in which we all emphasize our importance. But God and his word here is from radical communalism in which we all must be molded into his temple. Every single person has a part to play. We do not need to be looking for a reason roaming through the night to find our place in this world. All right. You got that one. In fact, so often looking for our plus world is what creates so much sadness and confusion among us. If you're looking at the world around you wondering if you fit in, here's for you. You don't. You don't fit in. When God brought you to life in Christ, he adopted you out of that and into his own. 
what must be addressed and what this addresses today is that it is absolutely essential to the Christian life that we know we have a place in his church. Knowing your place in his church and his kingdom is actually very important. And despite so many, so many um, spiritual gift inventory might tell you otherwise, it's, it's actually not that complicated and difficult. So I want to approach this passage under, under just two of the spirit, purity, and diversity. God's ultimate goal for his church is that we should be united and use the gifts that he's given to reach maturity Christ. That's maturity individually, yes, but as a whole. And this is best summarized in Paul's own in verse 13, that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, of the Spirit and to maturity and diversity. So for unity of the spirit, let's dive into the passage a little bit more. As, as I said before, at the, at the start of chapter four, Paul begins to detail what are the emotions of that love that he spoke about at the end of chapter three. With that love in our life together as a church. Now, on the one hand, these verses come as a comfort to those of us who want to say, you know, stop all this, stop all this theology, stop all this hypothesizing. Just, just tell me what to do, Paul, to us. But you see, any church that just preaches what to do, the foundation of the gospel is actually preaching false doctrine. Why we do what we do actually matters. That's why the word therefore is at, at the beginning of verse one is so close. In chapters four, it's entirely upon what proceeds in chapter through three. That's shockingly obvious and without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Christian conduct follows from Christian doctrine. Teenager commands what we must do is really false because it subverts the gospel of grace we were saved. So Paul goes to great lengths to make sure we understand just what it is that God has before he tells us what we must do. We'll see even the things we must do flow out of his gracious gift for us. Now later on in Ephesians, Paul will spend a lot more specific with the uh, application of God's love. He addresses how they behave toward one another and how parents behave and, and bosses and employees and the like. But first he's going to lay a foundation for, for how, how we all ought to act in relationship with one another. That's how we treat one another. What is our relations? There's, there's really one word that captures the entirety of argument in these verses, and that's the word unity. He used specifically in verse 3 and verse 13, but also a related word in all throughout the passage. What is, what is unity? Speaking, unity is just the state of what? Being one. Or when combined parts come together as one. It necessarily means that every given group is the same. It means that everything has the same end or the same goal. And it's thing that can't happen individually, obviously. It has to happen In his uh, letters in prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German pastor and theologian. He was imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II for uh, opposing Hitler. In prison for two years, he wrote this. It it comes out of his letters uh, from prison, which were preserved after his death. He wrote this to his mother. He said, I'd like to ask you to take control of my things. Give away whatever I give it to and don't give it another thing. The last two years have taught little we can get along with. In the inactivity of imprisonment, one has above all a great need to do whatever is possible for good within the narrow limits that are imposed. What Bonhoeffer didn't know at that point is that this would be the letter that anyone received from him. Shortly after he wrote those words, he was transferred to a concentration camp, shortly thereafter executed. 
and Bonhoeffer had an impact on many since then. But what's, what's striking to me in this letter is that always, it, it, it's to be expected that being imprisoned, especially for those who are unjustly imprisoned, it, it changes a person. It changes your perspective. Alone for a very long in prison changes how you think about community. Bonhoeffer began to understand that even in his, even in his isolation, he was a part of something bigger. Paul writes from prison almost 2,000 years before Bonhoeffer, we hear a similar sentiment. Paul is not bragging in his imprisonment when he calls himself a prisoner. But he is, in a certain sense, being in Christ. He considers it a great honor that he should... When he speaks as a prisoner in Christ in verse 1, that's a prisoner for the sake of Christ, it's not that he's being chained down, but that he would rather be in chains and in Christ than free from Christ. So he urges, he even with the Ephesians that they would too count the humility that needs the Christian life to be a thing of great honor and a very union with Christ that we find contentment. Christ flows from his call. And this is time in verse 4-1 that, that Paul uses the word calling in the book, but he uses it in, in such a way that the Ephesians would know what he is talking. Um, you have a calling is what he's used the word calling in a number of different ways. Oftentimes, we, we use the word calling in, in illegitimate ways. That is, we use the word calling to sort of try to infuse the decision we make with divine authorization. And sometimes, and sometimes people just do it to make excuses for doing things that they otherwise be doing, saying that God calls them to do something. I've, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard many times, when, when people have used the, the phrase that God is calling them to do something, to really rotten things or possibly just really honest things. Um, there are other callings, of course, that are, that are not contrary to, but even these uh, false, Paul's talking about the, in, the, in the passage, uh, which is a universal calling that all Christians have. It's the foundational of unity. It's best summarized in 1 Corinthians 1, nine, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, we're called to be united with Jesus. Calling into fellowship with Christ into union with the son is the foundation of unity because, because every one of God's children throughout history. Since we all have the same, we're able to have incredible unity. Now, I want to emphasize the significance, of the significance of this calling because there's no other unicate in space and time. People may be unified, um, that is, by a national identity. They might be unified by a common interest, like a sports team or music or patient. But every single one of those is temporal. Even nations that last for a very long time do not rep individual interests like sports teams and music, even but the calling to fellowship in Christ is broad, pushing millions of God's followers throughout history. And it's first. So what's foundational to this unity? What are those aspects of unity that should exist universally? It's things without which we can have no unity. Well, Paul begins with these things together. He says humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, attain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Then uh, breaking these down individually, I just I just want to cover them all together um, because there's still a lot left here. Um, I'm going to summarize it 
with these words from Sinclair Ferguson. Summarizing these four things, humility is not a false demeaning of ourselves. Rather, it is a recognition that everything we have and are, everything accomplished is because of the grace of Jesus Christ to us. We have nothing except what we have received. Being able to take a long-term view of Christian as a work in process, remembering that our Lord has been and is so patient with us. You see, the foundational element of Christian unity is outward facing. When we look at one another, do we see that not as mature as us? And are we critical of it? Are you your own measuring how someone ought to behave toward those around you? In that way, and it makes you impatient, by its very nature disrupts peace. It destroys unity in the church. Why is the unity so important? Paul says it's the very essence and the very nature of it. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith. Baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. And what's striking about these words is that the nature of God within the nature of those who are with him or, or in there is one body, that's us, and one that's him. There's one hope, that's our hope. There's one that is Christ. Faith and baptism, those are ours, and one God and Father of all. Is there another passage in scripture that so uniquely together the fact that God is one in three, father and soul, and with the fact that, that we, his many children, are him? This, this of oneness is not something that everyone on earth experiences. Not too long ago, I was, uh, and I came across a video, it's 12 years old, so have probably seen it, and it was of a wife in the 1950s who volunteered for an experiment to take LSD on camera. And it's, watch. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really funny, it feels just ironic to watch this very put together one who's everything that you would think of when you think of a 19th trip acid. Um, she, she begins talking this video and touching the air and talking about the spider web. She says this to the interviewer. She, she says, it's here. It's, she doesn't say what it is, but she says, it's here. Can you feel it? I can, I can feel the air. I can almost, and I'm, I'm part of it. Can't you see? And the, the interviewer says, I'm trying to see it. He wasn't tripping, by the way. So uh, that, 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 there's this one kind of that, that people who promote the use of psychedelics often speak of as the greatest benefits of their use. It, it's to bring you to some sort of deep consciousness of the connectedness of all things, except for when it doesn't. About plenty of bad trips, fear and agitation and are most disturbing. And to put it mildly, they create unity. People then feel completely disconnected world. But the unity that occurs in God is uniting all things together in Christ is not a chemically induced experience that requires just the right dose administered in just way so that someone can have an experience that relies entirely adjusted chemical. 
God's unity that he creates as he brings his people to life, a spiritually dead state, so that we're all in one purpose under Christ. It's not experience for one and a bad experience for another. Because that's one of the conveniences of being a consumer worker is that when the Bible is replete with like kind of analogies, I get to like, the, the illustrations just abound. So here's one. <laughs> there's, there's something that happens on a construction site. And if you've ever been on a site, especially a commercial construction site, it's really fascinating. One trade or maybe one person in the same trade as another We'll be building something. They'll spend a lot of time building something, maybe length of conduit down a row, and they'll spend days and weeks doing it, and it looks just... And then someone comes along and looks at it and says, that's not right. And then, they, you know, they cuss at one another, and they, oh, it's and such. And then, eventually, what happens is blueprints, and then the other person says, look, I built it according to the prints, and they climb them down, or they gently lay down the iPad with the prints on it, they don't get fired. And then they compare it side by side. I built it to the prints. And they both look at it and say, but my set of prints is the revised version. Yours is the old one. And then the guy who built according to the old prints yells and cusses some more and he goes to his foreman and he says, why are you making me build with the wrong print? And eventually everything gets worked out. But when, when the, the two trade realization, the, the mechanical plan doesn't the electrical plan or the electrical plan doesn't match the architectural plan. All the plans match just fine, but the dates on the two sets of plans don't match. And one person is working on a revision that somehow the other person never... Re- they, they can't build the right thing if that's happening. And I can tell you in construction, this happens all the time. If you're driving around, and I know you, some of you have done it, because even I work in construction. If you're ever driving around and you're like, man, that thing is tilt. You, and you're thinking like, what's taking them so long? That's what's taking them so long. I can tell you that. The beauty of God's perfect plan, though, is that he, as the architect and the builder and the author of our faith, as the author says, the founder and finisher, he is one Lord, once one God and Father of all. And he holds all things in such a way that nothing exists apart from him. And so there is both and one baptism. And the church that he is, is not behind schedule. It's right on time. And do you understand that you're a part of that? Or do you function like Jesus' door and that your engagement in this community is in very importance? Well, Paul goes on from there. Having established that we're called all objectively one because God is one, and it would be, very, uh, it would be really tempting at this point to assume that we ought to look the same. And certainly some churches throughout history, especially churches, assume that we all ought to look the same that we should all have the same behaviors and the same, perhaps even the same clothing. And if we share the same call that, that results in the thing, then one would not only expect unity, uniformity. And yet it's on this very point that the argument turned to exhibit the church, God's church. Because grace was each of us, Paul says in verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's Paul begins talking about the gifts that Christ gives, which is a diverse set of gifts by first quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a fairly lengthy psalm that depicts God as a conqueror who rides on behalf of his people. God shall arise, Psalm begins, and his enemies be scattered. 
this psalm is not always seen as a face value if you're reading through the psalms, and yet Paul sees Christ. Christ is the triumphant king who fights on behalf of his people. But the gifts he receives in victory in Psalm 68 are then distributed back to his people upon his ascension to heaven. So Peter preaches 33, being therefore exempt of God, and having received father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's when, that's when uh, the people at Pentecost saw the Spirit poured out on his church. In this passage, there are two types of gifts speak of in this passage in Ephesians. First, the gracious gift given to each one of us. Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received, use it to serve one another. It's the same concept that Paul's talking about here. In, in 1 Corinthians 12.4, perhaps a passage that we're all familiar with, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties, of, but the same Lord. So we can see behind these words that Paul uses when he says, but grace was given to each of Christ's gift. Every single one of us has a place in the body of Christ. No one is left out. And Paul observed that language for only the most educated or the most socially skilled. We all share the same Lord and he has given grace to each one of us. In but Paul also speaks of another gift of church. In verse 11, it says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Paul names offices here. And I won't belabor this too much because Luke actually spoke, he preached on uh, in chapter 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Only to say that the apostles, as those called directly by Christ, prophets who, who shared the message of the apostles times are offices that no longer exist. And evangelists at this time, this word is only used a couple times in the New Testament, but it, it's the same word that we get our word gospel from. For those who carried that same message of the apostles and they were basically rank and file missionaries. But there's, a, there's a, another office that's mentioned here, and that is uh, the pastors and the teachers. Or uh, as we read uh, in, in this translation, and these are essentially the same office under the same article uh, in Greek. So, so, that, so that really what we're talking about here when we shepherds and teachers is, is the same office just with with different roles. You might notice something about this passage. Paul the apostle says apostles were given as a gift to the church. There's no sense of self-importance in Paul. There's no self-righteous about it. Another reason why Paul lays a foundation in verse gentleness is, is because of this. He's able to speak in this way because he's, he's certain of his role as an apostle. And his life has shown evidence of that role. What about pastors and teachers? Those who today are spat communication of that same apostolic message, the gospel. I'm sure we can all agree that the last thing any church needs is a pastor who acts like he's God's gift to the church. What would it look like if Luke came up here every Sunday, guys, and started? You're welcome. Would we think very highly of him? Of course not. What the church does need is pastors who have a real sense of their calling and an urgency for that calling, that they understand do for themselves, but they exist. If God has liberally did his gift of the Spirit to all who trust in Christ, is the ministry of pastor-teacher so important? If the Spirit, why, why do we still need then pastor-teachers? It's in verse 12. Pastors and teachers are there to equip saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. They are given as a gift in order that everyone may fully execute their individual gifts. They are not here to do all the ministry. Only to equip 
everyone else to do the ministry. Pastors are not supposed to be everything to everyone. If they exalt themselves on pedestals or if others exalt them on your can result. Because a congregation ceases to look at Christ, instead they turn their eyes toward the teacher who seems to have all the answers. And then possibly fail, failure because the elevated pattern then later on, as many of us have seen, comes. I can tell you that one surefire indicator that this is happening the entire history of the church is actually if a pastor is to self-identify or if others begin to identify pastor as an apostle or a prophet, it's going to come crashing down or it will become, it will become against the universal church of Christ. It's important that we understand when Paul talks about immature as being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and craftiness and deceitful schemes, he's not just talking about non-Christian or anti-Christian pagan mythology detracting Christians away from Christ. He's talking about the tendency that immature Christians have latch onto unscriptural teaching that's propagated by people as apostles who are God's gift to the church. We can, many, of us, many of us have seen this in, in, in our Christian lives, our lives. Oftentimes, those very people off into strange winds of doctrine begin as what seem to be very gusters. And I'll say, as an these are the same pastors sometimes who seem to be the most, the most intellectual. And there is a huge mark of their immaturity, their entire presence in the Christian community that we're known for is by being really good in very smart ways, making fun of all the other Christians who do, especially in reformed churches, especially in reformed churches. It is a mark, even as smart as these guys may seem, it's a mark already because they promote disunity in the church of God. And chaos news. Churches crumble. Ministers fall apart. Or much worse, fall to. Pastors cannot and should not be everything to everyone. All have been given varied gifts of the same spirit, and pastors and teachers are there to foster those gifts and make sure that every church to do the work of ministry. Why? Without belaboring the point of what Paul says 14, it's so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's that be said by way of, of illustration that our own addiction to immature things is a mark of our own immaturity. That sounds like a true as shocking, I know, but how many of us purport to be mature and yet immature things? Uh, recently I've listening to, for some reason, they come up on Spotify or something. I keep across these bands that I used to listen to as a teenager, brooding teenager in the nineties and time and second by just how bad those bands, they really are not that good. Uh, maybe some of them are, and they stand the test of time, but others are just shockingly bad. If they were that bad, why did I find them so entertaining? It matched my level of maturity. Maybe, maybe it's the way that we want to be entertained and sh- that, that shows our immaturity. It's okay if the things that really shock, I, I want to say this, it's if shocked and moved you early on as a Christian don't seem so amazing anymore because you're more mature. 
You don't have to believe the lie because you are less effusive than you once were, or you don't feel as excited as you once did, or you're not as enthusiastic as you once were. Teenage mission trip. I lost your zeal as a believer. Maybe what has happened instead, or what you need to Christ has been maturing you through many trials and trials and pains and pleasures and plenty and want throughout your life. This one hope that we have that God will unite all things in Christ applies to our lives in such a way that it creates a sober, a somber, unspectacular longing for rest and redemption. Chances are that if you to hear that, that the person sitting you does. And that is your work to speak the truth to them in love. Every single one of us functions as a different aspect together in his church. We are the brick and the thread, zipper and the binding, the interfacing. These are also into making some of the things that my wife makes. If you guys don't know, spinning interfacing, by the way. Uh, we're all crafted together into a beautiful work of art that is the body of Christ built into as, as our head, the completed project that is his maturity, that we would gather, but each exercise unique role in the body, the result of which is that all know with the deepest part of our beings, the love of Christ that serpent knowledge, and that we take that same light and let it infuse our very speech and our actions and everything we do today and think in life so that we are built up in love under Jesus Christ, our head. Amen. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us the gift of Christ. We are Christ that after you ascended, you gave us the gift of your spirit. And we are thankful that because of that gift of the Holy Spirit, us, because we so often that we have a place here in your kingdom. Every single one of us has a definite part of your purpose, your plan for all things in Christ to complete maturity. And Lord, this church, a place that strives for that maturity in you, in the diversity of our gifts. And I pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.